Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeffrey Myers, and Alistair Roberts will be discussing the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9. Before we jump in, we do encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes. We've posted several psalm chants over the last couple of months, and a few weeks ago we launched a new series going through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeffrey Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Acts chapter 9 and the conversion of Saul. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes is in and out uh, handling the recording, making sure that everything is going smoothly. Uh, We appreciate your listening and we appreciate your interest in Theopolis and your support of Theopolis, many of you. We are in the middle of a mid-year fundraising campaign. The focus of the fundraising campaign is to raise extra money to help us complete our Salter project. Uh, We have a preliminary form, a first edition of our liturgy and Psalter coming out in the next month or so. That includes about 40 psalms, uh, Jim Jordan's translations of those psalms, mostly settings that Jim arranged for the psalms. Uh, And then the book also includes the liturgies that we use at our uh, Theopolis Fellows Program and all the classes that we have for Theopolis. And includes other material. Uh, Jeff Myers has a uh, a guide to liturgy. Um, there's a discussion of psalm chanting from Paul Buckley. Discussion of the Book of Psalms, the structure of the Book of Psalms from Jim Jordan. So all that will be available in the first edition. But we w- what we want to do is release a complete Psalter, all 150 Psalms, with fresh translations that follow the principles that Jim Jordan has been using over the years, trying to reflect the structure of the. Hebrew text and the vocabulary of the Hebrew text as best we can. We want to sing God's words back to him. Uh, We believe that that has a world-changing effect, and so we want to make this Psalter available. In order to do that, we are trying to raise $30,000 above and beyond our normal normal operating expenses um, that will enable us to pay the musicians and translators and others who will be uh, contributing to this project. Uh, Please consider making a special donation to Theopolis during this month of July to help us raise that money. We uh, thank you for your support and thanks for considering a special donation. We're in the middle of a podcast series in the book of Acts, and uh, we are uh, have uh, covered the first eight chapters. Uh, We looked uh, at the transition from the Jerusalem-centered chapters, uh, chapters one through seven, uh, to the uh, scattering of the disciples that begins to occur in chapter eight. Uh, and that's going to be a background theme of uh, the next several chapters. Philip in chapter 8 is uh, scattered from Jerusalem, and he goes to Samaria where he preaches the gospel, and many hear the gospel and are baptized. So now Samaritans are being brought into the church and being baptized into the church. The Samaritans also receive the Spirit when the apostles come and lay hands on them. In a couple of chapters, we'll see the story about Cornelius, and Cornelius is a Gentile who's going to receive the spirit and along with his household. And so we have these uh, various Pentecostal moments where uh, the spirit is coming, not just on the Jews in Jerusalem and the disciples there, 
but is now coming on Samaritans. It's going to come on Gentiles. And the Spirit is bringing together these uh, various peoples and nations and tongues into one body in the Son. Chapter 9 is a crucial uh, moment in the story of Acts uh, because it's the conversion of Saul. And it's a crucial moment because of uh, Saul or Paul's centrality in the mission to the Gentiles. But it's also a crucial moment in the typology of the book. Jeff Myers has pointed out in, teach- in his teaching on Acts that the book follows the, uh, the basic priest-king-prophet sequence that structures much of the Bible and a lot of uh, sections of the Bible. Acts follows a priest-king-prophet kind of sequence. Uh, and in the first chapters, we're in Jerusalem. Uh, the temple uh, leaders, the temple authorities are the ones who are uh, opposing the apostles. With the, um, be, with the scattering of the disciples from Jerusalem, we have the beginning of a, of a kingly phase of the early church. And right on cue, we have the appearance of a character named Saul. Uh, Saul, of course, is the name of the first king of Israel. This Saul in the book of Acts, like the Saul who was king, is from the tribe of Benjamin. This Saul, like the other Saul, is persecuting a David, a king, a rival king. Uh, the original Saul was persecuting David, uh, and Saul is persecuting Jesus, the son of David. So we, we're moving into this phase where uh, Saul's going to be initiating this royal phase of the of the story of the book of Acts. And Jeff, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. You've been the one who's uh, focused on that in your teaching on Acts in the past. No, I mean, I think you said it well. Uh, from Acts 8, Acts 12, we have a lot of royal themes, uh, even... The podcast we just did on Philip and Simon are all about uh, wisdom and who's going to be the wise counselor to the cultural rulers in Samaria. Um, I'd add something to what you said, Peter, about the importance of this. Luke tells the story of Paul's conversion three times. Here in Acts 9, he narrates the events. In Acts 22, uh, Paul tells his own story in Hebrew to the crowd of Jews that are gathered outside the temple. And then in Acts 26, uh, Paul defends himself before Herod Agrippa in Caesarea. So the Holy Spirit wants us to hear and understand the story. I think I think about um, the uh, this TV series about 15 years ago called Heroes, and one of the bylines was, save the cheerleader, save the world. Um, and here it's like, save this Pharisee, and you save the world. And the truth is, uh, it is Paul who brought us the world that we often so take for granted. Paul, it's, it's because of Paul we eat the food we eat. Because of Paul, we believe what we do about God's grace and love in Christ. It's because of Paul that we live in a certain way in relation to others in the church and in society. I mean, and probably it's because of Paul that most of us were converted as Christians. So, I mean, save this Pharisee, and Luke understands you're going to save the world. Of course, Jesus saves the world, but he does it through his prophet to the nations, this ambassador Paul. Just a quick comment about how the whole thing kicks off in this chapter. Um, I'm struck by this this word bound in verse 2. Paul, later in life, will have a, a very strong theology of God's sovereignty and the unstoppability of God's plans, and he'll write, that on one occasion how he is bound um, in chains, but the word of God is is not bound and is is going out abroad. And I wonder if part of 
part of that knowledge and conviction he has relates to his pre-conversion experience. He has been seeking to imprison people um, in Chapter 8. Here he's now trying to bind um, people, but it, it has the exact opposite effect. And I wonder if later in life he was able to see his own imprisonment in that light and be um, convicted that this would just continue the furtherance of the gospel. Mm. The description of the early Christian movement here as the way is interesting. We find the same term used for the early Christian movement on a number of occasions in Acts. And it seems interesting to me that that term um, is not one that we've really kept. We talk about ourselves as Christians, which seems to be a name that's given to the Christians by outsiders. But the way is a term that Christians seem to have used of themselves. Mm. Which probably has a at least a, partly a um, Christological root. Jesus is the way. And then behind that, surely you'd have the, the various two-way paradigms that you have in the Old Testament. Um, the wisdom literature that sets out the way of folly and the way of wisdom. Uh, the Psalm 1, which is a kind of wisdom psalm that sets out the, the way of the righteous man, the way of the wicked. But I think those come to a focus in Jesus as uh, the way, the truth, and the life. I, think, I was going to say, though, I think we, we, we read this, I think, rightly as a conversion of Saul. And I think a lot of the, the language that describes his conversion is quite dramatic. Uh, James pointed to uh, some of the early language about what he's doing to people. He's binding them. Uh, the very first thing we're told is that he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Uh, that's a, a pneuma, which is uh, related to pneuma, the word for spirit. Later on, after he meets with Ananias, he's going to be told he's, he'll receive the Holy Spirit. So we have his, he begins breathing out one thing. He ends up receiving the Spirit, and he gets new breath. When Jesus confronts him, he falls down to the ground. Uh, he's blinded. Uh, he sees nothing. He can't do anything. Uh, verse 9 has this uh, a series of negatives. At three days, he's without sight. He neither eats nor drinks. He can't see uh, he's undone uh, and uh, and helpless. He has to be led by the hand, uh, and then all of that's reversed, of course, in the course of the the uh, encounter with Ananias. He's he's baptized. His spirit comes in him. Uh, he receives his his sight back, uh, and he begins a fast here in verse nine that he breaks in verse nineteen after he's been baptized. He's brought into. Uh, not just a, a fellowship of believers, but he t brought into a table fellowship. He takes food and is strengthened. So you have this overall, I would say, it, it, it looks like a, a death and resurrection kind of sequence, a shattering of the old Saul and the reconstruction of a new Saul. Uh, and you have these these points of contrast that are going out throughout the chapter. So do we believe that Saul here was just a rank um, uh, unbeliever? Maybe it's not the right word, but... Um, well, it's always interesting question about what was Paul's self-conception here. Um, he's hunting down the disciples. Uh, is he consumed with the glory of God? Is he just is he zealous and jealous to defend the glory of the true God? You know, against all these uh, what he thinks are blasphemous distortions, um, and uh, so. He's a faithful Pharisee, but he's just 
misguided. He's misdirected. He hopes maybe for some kind of commendation from God like Phineas received back in Numbers 25 when Phineas was credited as being a righteous man and God covenanted with him. Does Saul see himself burning with holy indignation about what he considered to be this blasphemous new movement? That seems to be the case. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while, but I think uh, N.T. Wright kind of makes that argument, I think, pretty well. Yeah, I, I think that's the that's the, what I would uh, say of him. He's a, uh, he later describes people as having a zeal without knowledge, and that seems to be uh, what he's what's happening with Paul, with Saul himself. It's one thing to say he's got a self conception where he's a zealous defender of the holiness of God and of the purity of the people of God. It's another thing to say that that's what he actually is. I mean, um, Jesus condemns Pharisees and scribes as being not just misguided but wicked because of the way that they distort the scriptures. And if they if they actually understood the scriptures, then they would know who he was, he tells them in the, in the Gospel of John. So I think that's part of the mix, too. Um, it's not just a matter of ignorance. There's, a, there's an attachment to a false reading of the Torah that doesn't, uh, doesn't see the Torah as uh, pointing to the Christ and to Jesus in particular. No, that's good. That's helpful. If that is the right view of Saul, it's, it would suggest that he sees in Christianity, in the way, a, a particular threat, which he's particularly exercised about. You get the impression, don't you, when you read Gamaliel's um, statements that messianic figures who arose weren't particularly uncommon and they normally just died out and you don't get the sense that people needed to persecute them a huge amount. But Saul is, is obviously exercised about the messianic movement in Jesus. He, he sees this as in some way different. I'm waiting for Alistair to drop the connections between the Benjamite Saul and the and the, Div- the new Davidic <laughs> King Jesus. That certainly seems to be a theme that goes throughout um, Acts eight, uh, Acts 9 and also I think in Acts 13, the um, juxtaposition of the old Saul and um, this new Benjamite who's pursuing the Davidic King. I think one of the things that is interesting here is the way that Christ addresses um, Saul. First of all, that address is one that's similar to the way that the Lord addresses um, the way he addresses Abraham in Genesis 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac, the way he addresses Jacob later on, the way that he addresses Moses at the burning bush, the way that he addresses Samuel in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3. That address as Saul, Saul, and then why are you persecuting me? That question is one that is premised upon the deepest of connections between Christ and his people. There is a theology of union with Christ that is implicit within this statement that, of course, Paul is the theologian of union with Christ, the one who explores that theme and unpacks its implications. But his exposure to this in its most raw form is at the very point of his conversion and call. Um, It's the statement that in persecuting the church, he has been persecuting Christ. I think that's an excellent point. I'm interested in the way in which, yeah, that is a theology brought out in Paul's later letters, but then it's, it's latent in the narrative of Acts as well. We've just looked so closely at the way in which uh, the church 
are acting and living like Jesus. And so that union is, yep, it's a theological truth, but it's lived out in in, in the daily life and existence of the church too. And as I, I, when Jeff cited N.T. Wright, uh, Wright points this out to, as well, that uh, by encountering Jesus, a living Jesus on the road, he knows who this is who's speaking to him. By encountering that Jesus, he suddenly realizes that um, everything he has been doing is um, his anti-evangelistic campaign has been uh, wrong. He's been opposing the Messiah, uh, the one who the Lord, whom the Lord has set up as Lord in Christ. And uh, the living Jesus um, reorients everything about his uh, outlook on the scriptures, is everything uh, about his outlook on life, and also his mission. He's been carrying out this effort to suppress the church and to suppress the mission of the church. But once he encounters Jesus, uh, he uh, is commissioned to become a, a, an, a, an apostle. Now, I think this is both a conversion story and a commissioning story. Uh, and part of, part of the commissioning, actually it's commissioning and conversion both, I guess, is that Saul begins to do all kinds of things that uh, Stephen uh, and behind Stephen, Jesus uh, did earlier. Uh, Ananias is told uh, that Saul is going to have to suffer a great deal for the kingdom and for the sake of Jesus. Once Saul goes back out in public, he begins contending with the Jews and the Jews try to kill him. Uh, Paul goes back to Jerusalem and or goes to Jerusalem and he encounters the Hellenistic Jews in verse 29, who are the various very Jews who were opposing Stephen. Uh, nobody can nobody can refute Paul. He's he's overcoming all their arguments. And they're plotting against him because they've been bested. Later, there's going to be the same charges brought against Paul as were brought against Stephen. So in, in his conversion, he's being remade into the likeness of the one whose uh, martyrdom, whose death, whose murder he approved. Uh, and he's being remade into the likeness of Jesus, who is the model for Stephen's own ministry. Hmm. Interesting. So, so much of the theology, the thought of the Apostle Paul can be traced back to the uh, the narrative here, and, and it, it seems as if Luke wants to call attention to some of these things, so we see the connection. Alistair already mentioned the fact that for Paul, the church is the body of Christ uh, and the bride of Christ, and persecuting the church is persecuting the Lord. But there's other things here, too. S- Paul's emphasis on death and resurrection, for example, or even the death and resurrection and in uh, Romans 6 of uh, baptism that's involved in baptism. Well, here, Saul is without food for three days. Three days. He's blind for three days. He's, in effect, dead to the world for three days. He's got to die to his old self and and rise again uh, to a new life in Christ. And these are themes that Paul himself will come back to again and again. And you mentioned also, Peter, verse, um, what was it, verse 16, where the Lord says to Ananias, I'm going to show Saul how much he has to suffer for my name. That's also a big theme in Paul. And you think about Colossians 1, where he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of the church to fill up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. So you get this this missional kind of posture of, of Saul, that he's suffering for the sake of the church, not 
not, of course, to provide atonement or to provide, uh, you know, forgiveness of sins, but to 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 fill out the maturity and the growth of the church. He's got to suffer. And all of, uh, there's there's more than that, but uh, there's at least that here in this narrative, which is fascinating. Again, again it reminds me of how incredibly uh, subtle and and sharp uh, Luke is. All these apostles are. Uh, they're just not penning something off the top of their head. They're composing a narrative which is rich and full. Your point about death and resurrection, Jeff, strikes me as interesting that in the Old Testament, we have multiple accounts of Saul's death. We have the first in narrative form, and then later we have a verbal testimony. And as you've pointed out, we, we have the same in terms of Saul's new life. Here, first we have the narrative account, and then later we will have the verbal testimony to it. One motif to the list that Jeff uh, Jeff was giving, the way that Jesus encounters Saul is by coming in a great uh, bright light. Heaven flashed around him, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him in verse 3, and he's blinded by this blinding light, which he later picks up, um, citing Isaiah, talking about the light that's going on the Gentiles. He talks about his own ministry as bringing light to the Gentiles and giving them eyes to see. So even in the form that uh, Jesus appears, we have this preview of the mission that uh, Paul's going to carry out. Reading the story of um, Saul's conversion here, it might draw our minds back to Luke chapter 4 and the story of Christ's um, baptism, temptation in the wilderness, and then his speaking in the synagogue in Nazareth. There are a number of parallels with the story of Christ, the, um, the three days, and then the rising up on the third day, um, but there's also there's the the bright light, the vision from heaven. There's the fasting that follows, and then there's the returning in the power of the Spirit to speak, proclaim in the synagogue, and the proclamation of um, that Christ is the Son of God, and the response of people being amazed. Is this not um, in the case of? Luke's account in chapter four of his gospel, is this not the carpenter's son? Or um, Whereas here, it's, is this, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And then later on, this threat to his life and the way that he has to be let down through an opening of the wall, just as Christ is immediately threatened with being thrown over the high place and then walks through the midst of them. But that story also reminds us of the story of David, David who's let down through the window or the spies in Jericho. But that reminder of David's story, I think, picks up a point that Jeff mentioned earlier, the connection between Saul and the Old Testament counterpart, King Saul, um, is here in some sense reversed as Saul starts to take on the characteristics of David and the new David, David's greater son. There's another remarkable thing here, and that is, even though Saul has a direct revelation from Jesus himself, he has to enter the kingdom of God in the same way that every other disciple does. He's got to be baptized by another disciple. So there is this man, Ananias, and Saul has to hear and receive even his prophetic mandate from a member of the local body of believers in Damascus. And this is, I think there's obviously something here that's uh, transferable. This is the way Jesus leads and guides and communicates 
with us, and even Saul has to humbly accept it. He's special, you know, insofar as his unique apostolic commissioning, but with regard to forgiveness and new life, he's like every other sinner. He needs to be incorporated into the body of Christ through baptism. And then what is even more remarkable is this guy who's been breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. After he's baptized, he's received by Ananias, who no doubt stands in for the whole company of the disciples. He receives Paul as a brother. So Paul becomes part of this local community through baptism. I think that's extremely significant because um, sometimes when the conversion of Saul is relayed or used in sermons and stuff, it, it's this miraculous kind of thing, and we forget that it's also very ordinary. That couples it together quite nicely with um, Acts 8, I think. You noted there, Jeff, when we looked at it, that rather than just um, the spirit um, opening the Ethiopian eunuch's eyes and, and so forth, um, Philip was sent to explain the scriptures to him. And, and so it was the church growing via human vessels in, in an organic way. And, and obviously the same thing is happening here. Saul will be led by Ananias. So th- there is that, yeah, the, the, the church is, is growing and God is using individuals in, in the church to, to spread the word. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to double down on what Jeff was saying about in, importance of Ananias. Um, the practical importance is really important and the, the implications that has for uh, the way the church operates both in Acts and, and now. But if you just if you just look at the structure of the passage, the encounter between Ananias and the Lord is central in the passage. Uh, we leave Saul blind and fasting in verse nine, and then after he encounters Ananias, something like scales fall from his eyes and he takes food, uh, and all the things that had happened to him begin being reversed. He was binding people um, at the beginning of the chapter. Now, verse twenty-one, people are saying, "This is the guy who used to bind people." But the center of the whole center of the story, the hinge of the story, isn't what happens to Saul. The hinge of the story is what happens to Ananias. Uh, verses ten through sixteen, Saul just drops out of the out of the story for that for those verses. And what happens is the Lord appears to Ananias. You can kind of plot out all the things that happen to Saul. He sees a vision. The Lord calls him by name. He's given instructions. He obeys the instructions. All those things that happen to Saul are happening to Ananias. And so you can. Uh, you can say that this is a kind of a story of a double conversion. It's both Saul's conversion from being a persecutor, but it's also a conversion of Ananias, at least to the extent that he moves from somebody who is, the first thing he thinks of when he hears of Saul is how much harm he does to the saints of Jerusalem. But then he's told, go and welcome him and uh, and welcome him as brother. As Jeff said, he he calls him brother Saul in verse 17. But that, that's, a, that's as miraculous a change as we see in Saul. So you not only have a persecutor turned into a persecuted disciple, but you have a disciple welcoming the persecutor uh, into, in, into the church. Uh, you can imagine all the suspicion that it's going to come up elsewhere, that there's a worry about Barnabas has to, has to mediate an introduction to the, to the uh, disciples in Jerusalem because they're suspicious of, of Saul. Uh, but there has to be conversion on the part of the on the part of the church receiving the persecutor as much as on the part of the persecutor. That's an interesting point, Peter, because um, if we see Saul here as effecting a kind of redemption of his namesake, his his worse 
namesake, the, the fallen Saul, then we have the same with Ananias, really, in that he reverses um, the role of hmm. chapter five's Ananias, who lied to the Holy Spirit and, and didn't um, proclaim the truth. But this Ananias um, would undo that and proclaim the yeah. Spirit. Yeah, good point. I think the, the the practical application of that, if you think of it, we don't encounter this much in our own situation, but there are Christians all over the world who who actually have to reckon with this. What do they do with members of a tribe who once, uh, the tribe was once bent on genocide, and now they're converted, and they want to join together in the church? That's a real-life situation, but that's the uh, the power of the gospel is such that persecutors are not just turn from persecuting, but they're reconciled with their uh, victims. One thing we should probably reflect upon here is we've talked about this as conversion and a bit as call, but this is the call of someone who's going to play an absolutely pivotal role in the spread of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, um, talk about the way that Peter has been commissioned with the gospel to the circumcised. And Paul with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Now, the fact that the gospel to the circumcised is focused upon Peter in particular, of all the apostles, he's the one who has that primary um, leading role in that mission. And that he's paralleled with Paul, who exercises that role to the Gentiles. It suggests here, I think, that the call of Paul should be seen not just as the conversion of an individual who becomes an important figure later on, but as a redemptive historical event itself, that this is the opening of the eyes of someone who will be entrusted with the mission to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles in a further way. Peter initially opens that, but there's something about Paul's mission that gives him primacy within that particular realm of the Lord's field. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I, I, we see here another dimension of uh, the triumphant power of the gospel. We've seen this in in other settings in uh, Acts already. In Jerusalem, the apostles are arrested, uh, and that just opens up a new opportunity for them to testify about Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Stephen is persecuted to death. He's he's murdered, uh, but that gives him an opportunity to testify again to the Sanhedrin and also scatters the disciples who go to Samaria. Now you've got a persecutor who is trying to stamp out the stamp out the church and stamp out the gospel, stamp out this impurity in Israel, uh, and yet uh, the gospel Jesus triumphs over him. There's nothing that's stopping this. No matter what roadblocks or negatives are thrown up, they're all Jesus is turning them all into new opportunities for the expansion of the word and for the spread of the word. Uh, and here, as Alistair says, is a an enormous, enormously important event in the history of the church. That one, that one conversion uh, opens up the field of the Gentiles. Uh, and, you know, as Jeff said, you convert this one Pharisee and you convert the world. One of the ways in which that conversion is reflected in the text is in verses 14 and 15, where he's setting out to bind those who call on Jesus' name. Um, but he's converted in, in, to an instrument which will carry my name. And that brings out another aspect of these reversals we've been speaking about i guess one of the closer parallels to the idea of carrying a name in the old testament you know perhaps a, the hebrew equivalent is something like um la set et hashem which you get in the um 
Ten Commandments to, to carry God's name in vain, but more particularly in the um, the way in which the high priest in Exodus 28 carries the names of the, of the tribes on his um, on his breastplate. And so it's interesting here that then in verse 14, he's sent out under the authority of one of the chief priests. He gets letters from him in verse 1, but now he's commissioned in a very priestly way to carry god's name before the gentiles and, and so he, he's almost sort of set up as an, uh, a new priest a new priestly authority if we follow the um the list of events in the first couple of chapters of galatians and work out the chronology it would seem that this happens very early in the history of the church this would probably be happening around ad 30 um so there's a dense um series of events that have occurred in the spread of the initial spread of the gospel and paul has already been involved in persecution from that very early stage and very active and this sense of um of movement that's gathering speed at such a pace um you can imagine that would be of great concern to the leaders of the people and to saul and here we see another breakthrough in a very short period of time after the initial events of Pentecost itself. And not only that, um, Alistair, but it's so early on in the life of the church where the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, the leaders, become assassins. I mean, this is mentioned three times, I think, in this chapter, that the Jews are trying to kill uh, Saul, and Saul is trying to murder the disciples. This uh, hostility, this violence is big and it continues all through the book of Acts. And it's really surprising. I guess it's not surprising since they killed Jesus, but it's uh, sometimes we miss the fact that how violent and hostile the Jews are to the early church right from the beginning. It does remind me, as you've pointed out earlier, the connection between Saul and his namesake. There are very similar episodes in the story of Saul and his pursuit of David, and um, particularly the two occasions where David confronts him. And Saul is in a sort of blindness in both situations. In the first case, the blindness of the cave, and then in the blindness of sleep. And then there's this particular encounter where um, you read, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? And it seems a very similar sort of statement to Christ to Saul. Um, why do you persecute me? Hmm. It's even a very similar verb, um, just with a prefix to it um, in, in Greek translations of the Old Testament. Just a final point. I mean, it's not the most obvious point to draw forth from the chapter, but it just strikes me that while, as Anastasia has pointed out, the church is going through extraordinary things at the moment and there are these remarkable events happening, there is mixed in with it just the the normal human emotions and so forth. You know, Stephen dies and, and there is a lament and there is a great sadness and, okay, they, they could have confidence in God, but there there is still the normal side of things and here there is this remarkable conversion of of saul but ananias has just a, a normal skepticism and and um it, it's not as if things are happening in this um 
implausible or unhuman way. Uh, it, but it, it, people are going through the the standard things, but they are being led by God, who is doing something absolutely extraordinary in these days of the early church. And to piggyback on that, uh, James, at the very end of this uh, pericope, verse 31, in light of all this murdering and binding and plotting to assassinate, uh, it says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord you know, not the fear of the Jews, but the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Um, I mean, obviously, they didn't have peace in in the land, in the culture, and peace between themselves and the apostate Jews. But within the church, there is this great peace and comfort. Um, that's surprising. That's encouraging. <laughs> 